Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 9. Uh, and what a delight it is to share with our Southeastern community and be a part of all that God continues to do among his people who are here, uh, recognizing that God's good work among uh, the community of Southeastern is to shape all of us and to equip all of us for uh, serving the church and fulfilling the Great Commission with one another, and we take that quite seriously. And uh, it will be fascinating to see that in Revelation chapter 9, the thrust of the passage is the Great Commission. Uh, what the Great Commission means and how the Great Commission is to be lived out and what challenges there might be that one would want to overcome. So Revelation chapter 9, and we'll just read this entire passage uh, together. And since I only have an hour and 25 minutes to preach this sermon, uh, we'll, we'll kind of read it quickly together. So Revelation chapter 9, hear now what is the Word of God. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft to the abyss, and smoke came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from that shaft. And then locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth, and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green plant, nor any tree, but only those people who did not have God's seal on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Now their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days people will seek death, but they won't find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Now the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their heads, and their faces were like human faces, and they had hair like women's hair, and teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle, and they had tails with stingers like scorpions, so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. And they had as their king the angel of the abyss, And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it is Apollyon. The first woe has passed, but there are still two more woes to come after this. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. From the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million, and I heard their number. Now this is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these plagues, by the fire, the smoke, the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths." And their tails, because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. Now the rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. And they did not repent 
of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So we come to this passage in the book of Revelation. It's fascinating. We get to the fifth and the sixth of the trumpets. Now, the trumpets play a very important role in the book of Revelation. Remember that Revelation is, is the second volume that John wrote. So John had his gospel, and then you have the, uh, uh, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which John wrote as well as, a, as an addendum, the continuation, if you will, the, the follow-up and the solution to the questions that had been raised in the Gospel of John. Essentially, the, the Gospel of John gives us the, the preparation of and uh, the, the caring for the one who is the groom, and then the book of Revelation is the preparation for and caring for the one who is the, the bride, so that the Gospel of John starts with a wedding and the book of Revelation ends with a wedding. And those are the, the two weddings. You might remember in John chapter 2, at that wedding, Jesus is approached and said, would you provide the, the wine? Everybody's run out of this. And Jesus said, it's not my time yet, but when you get to the end of Revelation, it is his time. The marriage supper of the Lamb takes place, and, and all is brought to the intended end that God has for it. The seven trumpets then play a role in this preparation of the bride for the coming of the bridegroom and the marriage supper which is to come in the future. And there are several challenges that we've seen already that the, the church faces in uh, chapter 8. These seven trumpets, you might recall, kind of follow the pattern of the seven days of revelation, uh, seven days of creation, rather. But they're the opposite. They're what the enemy is doing to try to undo God's work of creation. So uh, God has His seven days of creation in Genesis, and in the seven trumpets, you have the seven days of uncreation, if you will, where uh, everything is reversed. It's like Bizarro World. It's uh, Satan doing just the opposite. If you if you've ever had the real thing and you compared it with with a knockoff. You kind of know what's going on here, only this knockoff will kill you. It's not like any knockoff. When I was a, when I was a kid, it was really popular. All the popular kids had these shirts that had an alligator on them. And I don't know if my parents like didn't believe in alligators or what, or if they just didn't want to buy me those expensive shirts. So I had the ones that had a fox on it. Now, it's different because you, you think, this is great. I want the alligator shirt. And your parents think, oh, this is good. This is close enough, is the way parents think. Having become a parent, I think the same way. It's close enough, a fox, an alligator. But when you wear it to school, everybody recognizes, no, that's a, that's a fox. You're, you know, like, you're the off-brand. Uh, this is like, you know, planning to go and to, and to have dinner at Denny's, and you end up, like, having to eat at Danny's. Or it's, uh, you know, saying that you're going to get the, the Jordans, and you end up with the Jordans. You know what I mean? So in, in Revelation chapter 9, that's what happens. What you're going to end up with is you end up with Satan offering the, the great value brand's temple. And this is the picture of what you have here in Revelation 9, is you have, you have a temple. When you begin this passage, you see that this temple, though, is in a deep abyss. That's fascinating. What is an abyss? Well, it's essentially just an upside-down mountain. So if you, if you take a high mountain and you turn it upside down, if you're drawing that out and you flip it around, now you have an abyss. You have a well that you go into. What John is, is helping us to see is that there's a, there's a pattern, there's a background to this passage, and that is the, the mountain of God in the Old Testament, which is His temple. You, you think about, for example, the, the book of Exodus, in Exodus 19, where God is up on a mountain, and, and what do you see? You see smoke, and you hear a voice, 
Come to me. Come up on top of the mountain. And the people refused to come. Well, what you have here is an upside down, a flipped up, uh, upside down mountain where smoke is coming out as well. I love this passage in Isaiah 6, a very familiar passage perhaps to many of you where uh, Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne in a temple, if you will, on top of this mountain in a temple, and there's smoke that's everywhere. So we shouldn't be surprised that there's smoke that comes up out of this abyss either, but this is not the real temple. This is the, the great value brand's temple. This is the one with the fox on it, but the one that will kill you. You see, this is Satan's temple, which is intended to emulate the temple of God. And what John is trying to warn us against is the, the false teaching and the evil that the enemy brings our way pretending to be the, the temple of God, but in reality offering to us the temple of, of Satan, the synagogue of Satan, as he calls it later. This is the temple of the enemy, not the temple of God. And so it's described to us as this shaft. It's, to, it, it's a well, if you will, Again, playing on the wonderful promise that the Bible gives to us of a well out of which living water springs. You know, if you come to the mountain of God, coming down from that mountain is living water that brings to us life and hope and, and forgiveness of sin and peace with God. And there's water that comes out of this well as well, but it's water that will kill you. It's water that's tainted. It's poisoned water, if you will. You see, it's not enough to simply grab a glass of water and drink it. If that water has been poisoned, it'll, it'll kill you whether it's water or not. And that's what happens in, in, in this passage. This seven days of uncreation, if you will, the seven temples, of, I mean, trumpets of uncreation is the enemy's way of trying to undo the plan and the purpose of God for people and for his people in particular. Now, in ancient Christianity, this passage here, these, these locusts that uh, aren't really like locusts, they're more like scorpions than locusts, are seen universally as false teachers. And now, there are a number of reasons why that's the case, and we'll kind of unpack that as we go along together. But just recognize this, that locusts in the Old Testament have a very important role, and that is to destroy, to eat. They eat the grass and they destroy the, the living things, uh, the, the uh, plants that they attach themselves to. And quite often these locusts are seen as God's judgment. And so when you have the, the plagues of Egypt, for example, these locusts come along just as they do here. But there's something quite fascinating about these locusts, which is, is very important. That is, these locusts really aren't locusts at all. These locusts transform are transformed into being like scorpions. Now, scorpions are also important in the, in the Bible as well. I love this in the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel lays out a temple for us and talks about these stinging scorpions that are just like a serpent, like an asp, that will reach out and bite you. And see, it's not beyond the scope of John's writing here to recognize that these locusts that are being sent aren't being sent by God. You see, when God sends locusts, they eat the grass. When God sends locusts, they eat the green stuff. They eat the salad, if you will. But when the enemy sends locusts, they attack the people. You see, God has done all that he has done in the story of creation, the book of Genesis 1 and 2, to provide a place for people to live in right relationship with him. And the enemy, Satan, despises that purpose. You see, God, lo God looks at people as his, the intended object of his love. The enemy looks at people, even those who are his allies, as those whom he might destroy because God loves them. 
And so in this passage, the enemy coming up out of this uh, upside-down temple, if you will, smoke that is now coming out doesn't enlighten. The smoke darkens. It covers the sun. It covers the stars. Now people can't see. The air is, is choked up with the smoke that comes out. This is not the good kind of smoke that you have on stage at your church. Uh, this is the kind of smoke when the church catches on fire, and now everybody has to rush out. It's the bad kind of smoke, if you will. And that's what we see in this passage, the bad kind of smoke, the smoke that darkens the sun that God has provided for people to see, that darkens their eyes. See, the reason why this passage is warning us about false teaching and false teachers is because false teaching clouds our eyes to the truth, to the light. It keeps us from seeing the light by darkening the light uh, in, uh, before us, keeping us from recognizing the one who is the light and instead embracing darkness in its place. Now, when the enemy sends these locusts out of this smoke and they're told that they can't harm the grass, they can't eat the salad, they can harm the people, they are not permitted, however, to kill them. This is a very important point to make about false teaching and false teachers. You see, as Christians, you have to recognize that false teaching will never kill you. It will just torture you. You know, the enemy of Christianity, the great enemy of Christianity is not the skeptic, it's not the, the atheist. It's not the unbeliever. It's not the, even, the, even the, fault, the, the one who practices false religion. The real enemy of Christianity is not those who are outside of it, but those who are on the inside but don't really believe it. It's the false teacher. That's the greatest threat to us. But understand that even false teaching is not fatal for the church. I mean, after all, hell can't even destroy the church. Certainly false teaching isn't going to do it. But suffer, that's the goal of false teaching. The reason why the enemy desires to bring to the church this false teaching is so that we might get our focus off the mission, that we might turn our attention away from God and his purpose and his will and his way and instead look at other things. In fact, we see exactly what John is talking about in Revelation 9 here unfold in the book of, Revelation, in the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, we see, for example, this character, Saul. Saul is someone who's a religious zealot. He comes out of the temple. Don't forget that Saul is given orders by the temple and permission by the temple to kill Christians. The temple out of which he comes is not God's temple, though. It's the enemy's temple. It's the synagogue of Satan that he comes out of. And so he pursues people to destroy them, to take their lives. And what false teaching will do in the church is torture, harass the believer. But it will so distract us from our mission and our message that it will destroy those for whom that message is intended. Those outside of the church who don't know Jesus Christ are the ones who suffer when we get off task, when we get off mission. And so the enemy here is not trying to kill Christians. He can't do that, but just to distract Christians, to keep us from being involved in the mission for which we have been called. And so these locusts come not as normal locusts who eat things up, but as scorpions who sting, who bite, who torture and harm human beings. And it's interesting to see how these scorpions or locusts are described for us. Down, if you will look in verse 7, 
They're prepared for battle. They're like horses who are going out. They've got these golden crowns on their heads, and their faces are like human faces. So John here is letting you know these aren't real locusts. These aren't like little bitty bugs that are flying around and eating things. These locusts, like so much of the book of Revelation, symbolizes people. These locusts that have tails of scorpions are human beings. These false teachers, and what do we discover about them? Watch this. They had hair like women's hair. You think, well, that's weird. What in the world might John be talking about? Like, is it, is it pretty hair or is it long hair? I mean, I look around this room, and I'm like, I know some of you aren't locusts because you don't have hair, much less hair like women's hair. But what does he mean by this? Well, think about this. This is very important to note. In the Old Testament, the people that had long hair were warriors. They were zealots, religious zealots for God. When you think back about Saul being sent out from Satan's temple to go and destroy these uh, Christians, he went out believing that he was doing God's work. See, the problem with false teaching is not that they stand in front of you and say, your faith is a waste of time. What they say is your faith is just incomplete. I've got more that I can give to you. They either add to or take away the faith, or they multiply it into being other things, or they divide it or people up from one another. The problem with false teachers is that they are zealous, but they're zealous for the wrong thing. Be very careful in not thinking that being the, the Christian that God has called you to be is being a, a warrior for Jesus, not in the sense of these warriors, these Nazarites, if you will, who are going to race off into battle, don't even have time to get my hair cut because I've got to go serve God. I've got to go be a zealot for him. I have to be a warrior for him and destroy the enemies of God as though that's the goal of the Christian, the role that the preacher is meant to play is I'm going to go and destroy people who are my enemies. No, that's what the enemy does. Satan is the one that sends people out as religious zealots, pretending to offer the truth when, in fact, what they are offering is nothing more than a carefully crafted lie. But it's seductive. It can be seductive for us. We are, we are all drawn to courage. We look at what's going on in our world today, and we see men and women who stand up as courageous people and we rightly are drawn to that kind of courage. We're drawn to that kind of bravery. But what we must avoid and can't be drawn to is a misplaced zeal. You see, religious zeal is no substitute for Christian fidelity. For us to simply say we're going to go and work on behalf of God is not the same thing as saying that we're going to go as servants of God. You see, the religious zealot goes and tries to harm God's enemies, but the faithful Christian goes to serve and love God's enemies. What the one who loves does is not kill, but to convert. To go and to see enemies turned into friends is precisely what God does for us in Jesus. He comes to his greatest enemies not to harm us, not to destroy us, not to bring us pain, but to bring us life but not so the enemy. The enemy wants only to harm. And so he sends these false teachers, say in the book of Acts, out of the, the synagogue and into these churches. Paul refers to them as the Judaizers. This is who John has in mind here. 
in the ancient church are these Judaizers who, who come out of the religion of Judaism and they embrace Christ and they come into the churches and as false teachers, they, they harm people. This is the way Paul describes them in the book of Galatians, for example, that they're bewitching people, they're fooling people, they're tricking people. These teachers are to be avoided and rejected and neglected, not people who are outside, but people who are inside putting on the clothes of the shepherd when in fact they're actually wolves. And so Revelation here is warning us that as the bride of Christ, as the body of Christ, that there is false teaching that we have to constantly be on the lookout for and not be seduced by. And oftentimes that false teaching comes in the form of great religious zeal, being a warrior for God, as though God needs you to do His bidding. I mean, this is one of the great challenges for us, right? That God calls us to, to serve Him by serving others and by loving them, by sharing with them the good news of what God has done for them in Jesus. And we see ourselves as God's protector, as God's defender. I think about the story of Peter. Love this story, right? We're told that, that Jesus asked His disciples, who do men say that I am? And they're like, oh, some people say you're Elijah, and some people say you're John the Baptist. And he's like, okay, Aunt survey says, none of those are right. So who do you say that I am? And they all look around at each other like, oh. and they all look at Peter, because, you know, Peter, he's not afraid to say the wrong thing every time. And so Peter speaks up. And this time, surprising to everybody, they all pass out. I mean, three of them, you know, have a conniption fit on the, on the, uh, the floor because he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He gets it right. And Jesus is like, well, you're exactly right. That's, that's a revelation, that that's true. That's like the book of Revelation. And what it's saying to us, that Jesus is this Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, I got that one right. And he says, yeah, so that means I have to die and be raised from the dead. And Peter, the, the text tells us in Mark, pulls him aside and he refutes him. <laughs> now, I'm not sure who you should refute, but I'm thinking Jesus probably isn't one of those people that you should be accosting. But Peter does that, and Peter says, no, I have to protect you. See, Peter displays some religious zeal here. I will protect you from dying. God, you, you need me to protect you. And Jesus calls him Satan. He goes in a moment from, from being ignorant and unlearned to saying the right thing and giving the right answer to being Satan in just a couple of verses. Why? Because he positions himself as the defender of God. God doesn't need our defense. He's his, he is his own warrior. He doesn't need us to be his warriors to take up arms to bring an end to his enemies. God doesn't call us to destroy because God is not a destroyer. But the king of this temple is. If you notice down here at the end of verse 11, we're told the name of this star that has fallen Anytime that you uh, read in the Bible about a star, it's a message about a king or a ruler of some sort, like in Numbers 24, the star of David that arises whenever the, the magi come. They see the star, and that's what causes them to go look for the king because a star is a ruler. In this instance, the star is Satan. He's the one who rules this underworld. He rules the upside-down temple, and the name of Satan in this passage is not the deceiver, but the destroyer. This is what he seeks to do. Look, you cannot open your life and your family and your church 
to false teaching that only destroys. We have to be on the lookout for false teaching that we aren't misguided. We will lose at the first moment that we listen to this fifth trumpet and we give our attention away and over to false teaching, we will lose any sense of God's mission to people. So what does God do? He provides for us a sixth trumpet. So the fifth trumpet is the one that tells us about the enemy's forces that come out and they, they wreak havoc. They abuse and they torture and they harass people. They are these false teachers that Paul deals with. In fact, it's Paul himself before he is converted. Saul is the one that has the long flowing hair. He's the, the William Wallace type who is racing out to go defeat the enemies of God, to destroy the churches. But something happens. Notice this, and, and don't overlook it. It's very important, but it's easy to miss. Now look, as those of us who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, it means the words matter. <laughs> the words that are there are what, are what count. So don't, don't miss the words by just thinking of the story. Look at what happens here. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. So this is the sixth day. What happens on the sixth day of creation? We're going to expect to be some human beings that are here, right? This is what happens on day six in creation. So the sixth angel blows his trumpet, and from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I, watch this, heard a voice. Now, don't miss this. You may have overlooked it, that in the first five trumpets, John saw. But on day six, he hears. It's what makes a difference. It's the voice of God. It's the Word of God that changes the perspective here. In other words, what is God's solution to the destruction that is wrought by false teaching? It is his word. So in the fifth trumpet, it says that I saw this happen. And then the sixth trumpet, I heard a voice. Just like we have in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, where God forms Adam and Eve, Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from Adam's side. And he speaks to them. For the first five days of creation, God simply said, let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. But when you get to day six, he says, let us make. He goes from just speaking and something happening to doing something himself, entering into this very work and the one by whom God enters into his own work of creation is his own word, his voice. John hears this voice. He hears the word of God. And the word of God, God himself speaks to this angel and says, now is the time to release these four angels who have been held at the Euphrates River, not the Jordan. See, it's a very important distinction here for Israel, Jordan was the, was the big deal. It's the big river, the important river. Everybody's into the Jordan. Everybody wants to go to the Jordan, through the Jordan, across the Jordan. But for humanity, for the world, it's the Euphrates River that really matters. The Euphrates River is the one that's mentioned in the book of Genesis. The Euphrates River is the one where the Israelites pass over coming back out of exile in Babylon. It's not the Jordan River that matters. It's the Euphrates River. You see, for you, the Jordan isn't the key place to go, not the key and important river to cross. The Euphrates is. And why? 
Because by crossing the Euphrates River, you enter into this new Eden that God has made for you in Christ. You remember when Jesus told his disciples he was going to leave, they were upset because they didn't understand. They didn't know. They didn't get the story. They, they, they hadn't read the Word of God. They hadn't read the Old Testament and understood it. And so Jesus said, well, wait, I'm going to go and prepare a place. Well, what is he preparing? The place on the other side of the Euphrates. That's what he's preparing for you. In the same way that in Genesis 1 and 2, he prepared a place for Adam and Eve to live in, an Eden for them to dwell within that has a garden in it. He's done the same thing for us. And he promises that he will bring that to its fulfillment. And so he comes to the great river Euphrates, and the angels cross over. And what's important in this passage, notice the words here, that these four angels were prepared for an hour a day, a month, and a year. Now, there's another angel that was prepared for an hour, a day, and a month, the angel at the Passover. You see, the picture of the Passover comes into full display here as God promises to us that he will bring into our lives now and into our world in the future the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover the solution to the, the harassing and the torture of false teaching in the church is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as this Passover lamb. And so John tells us that God is going to send and does send into the world those who would proclaim a message that we're told at the end of verse 15 would kill a third of the human race. Now you think, oh my goodness. So the enemy couldn't kill humanity in the fifth, on the fifth trumpet. But with the sixth trumpet, God's going to kill people? Ah. Oh. But what is it that, that God intends in terms of killing people? What kind of death is God all for? What kind of death is God about? You see, these angels who are sent out and all of their hosts that we see following this in the next several verses all of this host that go with them these warriors who go out are not the kind of warriors who bring about the deaths of human beings in a physical sense but who through their proclamation of the word of god see a third of humanity die to self and die to sin die to their idolatry and find their life in Jesus Christ. In other words, what we see here in between the, the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet is the same conversion we see in Saul. As he goes from being the great zealot who's going to seek to kill, but is kept from doing so, to hearing a voice on the road to Damascus. And in a moment, he goes from the religious zealot who is trying to kill to the faithful Christian who is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations that they might die to self and die to sin and be made alive to Christ. So he goes from being the one that has this long flowing hair like William Wallace who's riding off to kill and to destroy to being a faithful teacher of the gospel. The book of Acts tells us this story of how it happens with Paul and John now leads us to this same message to say it must happen with you as well. God has offered to us a hope. And the hope is found not in our being warriors for God, but of our being proclaimers of God's word. See, the interesting thing in this passage is that these horses and their riders that go out are wearing breastplates. 
but the breastplates they're wearing are not the breastplates of the warrior. It's the breastplate, breast, the breastplate of the priest. You see, the warriors that God has for his mission are those who are proclaimers and prayers. That's what God has called us to be, those kinds of people, those kind of warriors who race out to help people die to self and be raised to life in Christ. God is not about killing a third of human beings on the planet. God is about seeing human beings come to life through their death to self. As we share in the death of Christ and his resurrection from the dead, we do die, but it's the death before our death, and that's the one that counts. See, Jesus says if you, if you die before you die, you don't have to worry about dying. But if you don't die before you die, then your death is the end. The message that you and I have as we go into the world and proclaim the gospel is just this very message, that we too can proclaim to other people that there is a hope which can be found. We can go from simply seeing a vision to hearing a voice, not being a religious zealot, the religious William Wallace, if you will, but instead being Paul the Apostle. You see, quoting random Bible verses is no substitute for scriptural fidelity, embracing ourselves in, ourselves in the Word of God, recognizing that our greatest threat of false teaching is uh, responded to with fidelity to scriptures themselves. Reading the Bible as the Christian book, the inspired Word that nourishes our souls and is the goal of the church, False teaching and false teachers can hurt and can harm and can injure. But even false teaching, even false teaching is nothing more than a bully to be punched in the mouth. In the scriptures, the word of God is the place where we do this. We can ourselves, just as Saul did, move from being the enemy of God who's racing out of Satan's temple to those who lead people into the temple of God that they might know the smoke that brings life, that they might know the living water and drink deeply of that well, as opposed to the smoke that chokes them off from life and drinking of the poisoned water. You see, it is the Word of God, Jesus himself, that John hears here and calls us to proclaim. And we go to unbelievers and we tell them that they are not, they are not God's enemy, even if they see God as theirs that we, through suffering, can pave the way to Sabbath rest for other people. And this comes in the, in the seventh trumpet, the Sabbath rest that people can find. No longer unbelievers then on the outside needing to be defeated, but seeing them instead as the mission field who must learn of Christ's person and his work, which we just sang about a moment ago. So the questions for us this morning is, will we close our ears to false teachers so that our eyes can be open to God's mission? Are we going to instead listen to the message of the Judaizers and blind ourselves to the message of the Bible that God wills that no one should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance in the knowledge of Him? You see, it's important, as this passage is reminding us, to know that the army of God is an army of praying and preaching Christians that the Great Commission does not originate with God, with Jesus' words in Matthew 28, but in Jesus as the Word in Genesis 1 and 2. From the very beginning, this has been God's mission. 
that human beings would die to self and would die to sin and would die to their idolatry and that they would find relief from that false gospel that will only ultimately destroy. We have to choose to follow and to obey and to participate in the Great Commission army of proclaiming and praying that other men and women and children might come to know Jesus, rejecting God's, uh, Satan's army, rather, of false teachers, replacing it with God's army of faithful teachers. That's what God has called us to be. Let's pray together. Our Father, this morning, it is with great joy and delight that in reading a passage like this, we can see hope in the midst of darkness. We're reminded at the very end of this passage that two-thirds of the world, when being presented with this message, will reject it. Two-thirds of the world will refuse to hear the message and will remain in their in their idolatry and in their sorcery and in their murders and in their thefts and their sexual immorality. But there are those. There are those who will hear our message and who will respond in faith. There are those who, when presented with the good news of Jesus, will embrace it and will die to self and find life in, in Christ, life with you. We pray that we might be faithful participants in your great commission that all nations might cross over the Euphrates and find Sabbath rest, life in your land, knowing you in your temple as your worshipers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.